Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a four-week series called The Gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's join Dr. John Newfeld with a message entitled, Those Delightful and Troublesome Gifts, as we study in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. Here's the good news. The Holy Spirit has given special endowments to every Christian. You know, these are abilities that come from him, enabling us to be effective in our service to God. These abilities are called the gifts of the Holy Spirit. By calling them gifts, we are to assume that when we receive these special endowments, they're not as a result of anything that we've done or we've deserved. A gift is different than a wage. A gift is given because of the graciousness of the giver and not the worthiness of the receiver. And so whenever anyone receives a gift of the Holy Spirit, that gift highlights the nature and the character of the one who gives and not the one who receives. There are two very different kinds of endowments given by the Holy Spirit to Christians. One has been called the fruit of the Spirit. A full list of the fruit of the Spirit is given to us in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is very different from the gifts of the Holy Spirit. First, the fruit of the Spirit is a sign of authenticity, and the gifts are a sign of effectiveness. And by that, I mean that the fruit of the Spirit indicate the level of spiritual maturity of the follower of Jesus. But the gifts are not necessarily that at all. You know, all of us probably know individuals who have been very effective in their ministry, and then to our horror, we discover either a gross sin or a lack of scriptural understanding or an unwillingness to walk in humility. And that's the point. Fruit are a sign of authenticity. Gifts are a sign of effectiveness. Whenever we confuse that picture, we're in danger of misunderstanding what the Holy Spirit is doing. Find me a person who walks in the nine fruit of the Spirit, and I'll show you a person who is maturing in Christ. But show me a person who is gifted at, let's say, evangelism or administration or preaching or leading, and I can't yet tell you if they're spiritually mature. But on the other hand, it's not enough that we should be authentic. The Holy Spirit actually wants us to be effective as well. And hence, we don't denigrate either the fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. Now, here's another difference between fruit and gifts. All nine fruit of the Spirit are given to every single follower of Jesus. None of us are supposed to say, well, I have the fruit of joy and peace, but but not of kindness and self-control, and that's okay. You see, the Holy Spirit intends that every one of us should not only have all nine fruit, but that we should be growing in all nine. But that's not so with the gifts. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? See, the grammatical form of that passage demands the answer, no. The point is, of course, that within the infinite wisdom of the Holy Spirit, he gives but also withholds key gifts from everyone. And as we go through this series, I'm going to try to explain why that is. But for now, we've noticed several things. We've noticed that the fruit is given to all, but the gifts are not. We've noticed that the fruit is a sign of authenticity, and the gifts are a sign of effectiveness. 
Now, let's also notice one more thing. I say this with a note of sadness. In today's Christian world, there's absolutely nothing controversial about the fruit of the Spirit. I've heard no fervent debate between charismatics and non-charismatics over the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23 is, is rather straightforward indeed. But around the gifts of the Spirit, well, the matter's different. In essence, the debate centers around two groups. One group are called cessationists, and the other are called continuationists. And the differences are a little more complicated than you might expect. Let's start with an easy explanation. Cessationists believe that some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased, that is, they came to an end with the close of the early church, or they ceased after the New Testament had been written and was made available to the people of God. Continuationists believe that the gifts of the Spirit did not cease and won't cease until the second coming of Jesus. And so we might ask, which gifts are we talking about? Well, primarily, we're talking about what has been referred to as the nine sign gifts or the nine charismatic gifts. What are we talking about? Well, they're the gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, there we have it, nine gifts of the Holy Spirit and a great deal of disagreement about those nine. Are we to expect and anticipate that these nine should be active in the church today? Now, I know, I know, you're probably wondering where I stand on the debate, and I promise you that before I'm done this series, you will understand my position completely. So at the risk of keeping you in suspense, well, I'll just say that my position requires some explaining. But today, before we dive right into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I want to step back and outline why so many of us are concerned about this matter. I want to go through nine concerns that people have raised about the nine sign gifts or the charismatic gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Perhaps as I go through this, you might identify your concerns, but I want you to identify your concern and at least understand that you approach this text that is in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 with some trepidations because of your concerns. So the first concern goes like this. The concern is to preserve a closed canon. If you don't know what I've just said, well, let me explain. We believe that the 66 books that make up our Bible are closed. That is, nothing can be added to them. And so in some sense, all of us who are faithful and biblical are cessationist to some degree. We believe that the writing of our Bible is finished. No new prophecy can be added to our Bible. And why do we hold that? Well, for one, listen to the words of Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, let me be clear about the nature of our Bible. No Bible prophet sat down to write anything out of their own inspiration. Rather, what occurred to produce the Bible is that God acted first, then he raised up a prophet to explain what it is that God had done. So as an example, 
God first parted the Red Sea, and then he appointed a prophet to tell us what those things meant. And so God first brought Jesus into the world, and then, well, then he appointed his prophets and the apostles to explain what it is that the Jesus event actually means. Furthermore, the Bible tells us one story, and with the coming of Jesus, it reaches its climax. That's why Jude 3 says, this is the truth once for all delivered to the saints. God's revelation is complete. With the coming of Jesus, the prophetic era that makes up the Bible's revelation is done. Nothing can be added to Scripture. And those of us who are continuationists, well, we need to hear that concern. See, there are those, when we talk about the gift of prophecy, that need to be assured that whatever it is that we're saying— is not intended to mean that anything can be added to the Scripture or can be counted equal to the Scripture or can even supersede the Scripture. See, a lot of people are cessationists because they think that if you allow prophecy in the present era, well, then people won't pay attention to the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's the first very big concern that that some people have over the discussion of spiritual gifts, and all of us need to hear those concerns. Now, here's another concern that, that comes from the other side. A second concern is the concern that we would rob the people of God with intimacy with God. See, there is a concern from those on the continuationist side that if you deny the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 that what you're going to do is you're going to deny that God can speak directly to people today through a prophetic word. See, there's a concern that cessationists are much like liberal Christians. You know, liberal Christians denied the miracles in the Bible, but cessationists deny that God directly intervenes in people's lives, creating miracles today. At least that's how the concern goes. But these two concerns are really only the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more, and we need to hear those concerns from both sides of the fence. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy. Well, the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians, Empowered Living, Volume 1, available digitally or on CD, free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I've given two concerns about spiritual gifts, so now let me add a third concern about spiritual gifts, and it's the way in which the debate has been raging in recent years. In order to make sure that we don't give the gift of prophecy equal weight to the kind of prophecy that gave rise to the writing of the Bible, a very troublesome solution has been presented. 
There are those who argue that the kind of gift that the gift of prophecy is today is that it is the kind of a gift where a prophet is permitted to be wrong or to be inaccurate. And so has come the rather novel teaching that the New Testament gift of prophecy is of the kind where the prophet has certain impressions from God, but not a sure word from God. See, the argument goes like this, that in the Bible, the prophets were always accurate, but today, in the gift of prophecy, they don't have to be. And here's the problem. In the Old Testament, prophets were only considered prophet if they were right 100% of the time. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, 21 to 22. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true. That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now compare for a moment from the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 to 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now it's been argued that holding on to what is good means to sift through a prophecy and hold on to the good stuff and chuck all the bad stuff. But that's surely a ludicrous interpretation of that passage. The only way to judge a prophecy is by the statements a prophet makes. We know prophets aren't from God if their word proves untrue in any sense at all. You know, I recently heard a proponent of modern prophecy, and and he argued this way. He said that since there are fewer people of God in the Old Testament, God could concentrate on just a few. Listen to this argument. Now he says with so many people of God, the best that anyone can do is just get an impression of what God is saying. I mean, such a matter, were it not deceiving and dangerous, what would be a laughing matter indeed? Here's concern number four. Some are concerned that allowing for spiritual gifts that include tongues and prophecy will take away from a serious, in-depth study of Scripture and lead us instead to a fascination with the latest novelty. See, I'm old enough to remember some of the waves of nonsense that passed for spirituality. There was the idea first that being slain in the spirit, complete with people who had the spiritual gifts of catching those who were falling over backwards. And then came the the laughing revival. You weren't filled with the spirit unless you laughed and on and on for a long period of time. And then there was a matter of gold dust falling on people and even miraculously receiving gold fillings. None of these are signs of the spirit-filled life. And cessationists have pointed out that instead of searching the scriptures for the signs of walking in the Spirit, continuationists are badly distracted by these things. Well, that might be a fair concern. Concern number five is related to concern number four. This one has to do with all the charlatans who have a word of God on everything from when the rapture was going to happen to, you know, back in the year 2000, that all the world's computers were going to crash and who is the Antichrist to one popular so-called prophet who even proclaimed that when Eve gave birth, she gave birth out of her side and that Adam and Eve could fly. Well, the list goes on and on and it would make any serious student of scripture have the greatest of concerns. Here's concern number six. A great many believers are concerned with those who claim to have the gift of healing and, and the use of that gift. They're going to point out that in the ministry of Jesus, his healing ministry served as a sign of the kingdom of God. But today, many point out that some people who teach healing have no biblical theology for suffering. You know, I recently read an article in Christianity Today. It was on the 50th anniversary of Johnny Erickson Tata's accident, left her as a quadriplegic. 
The headline read, After 50 years in a wheelchair, I still walk with Jesus. And what followed was an article that truly brought tears to my eyes. I was deeply moved by her godliness. She began by quoting 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. She was expressing the hope that we all have in Christ. And it's what she said later in the article that truly brought tears to my eyes. Here's a quote. There really are more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than having use of your hands. And that is having a heart that's free of the grip of sin and pride and self-centeredness. And then she added words that deeply touched me. She said, I memorized a quote from William Law many, many years ago. He said, receive every inward and outward trouble, every disappointment, every trial, every uneasiness, every darkness and desolation with both your hands as a blessed opportunity of dying to self and entering into a fuller fellowship with your Savior. Look at no outward or inward trouble in any other view. Reject every other thought about it, and you will find that the day of your distress will become the blessed day of your spiritual prosperity. See, that's huge in the life of the believer who suffers. You can take pain as an opportunity to die to yourself and live to Jesus, and you don't have to break your neck to do it." End quote. Many of us believe that Christ can and does heal. But we are afraid that an excessive fixation with healing really has led to a lack of spiritual discernment and more. It has led to the condemning of those who have not been healed, charging them with not having faith. And in the case of Johnny Erickson Tara, I know a few people in the world that demonstrate greater faith than she does. Well, that's six concerns, but let me share the last three. Concern number seven. It's the concern that we tone down the rhetoric. Aren't all faithful Christians cessationists to some degree? See, we believe that the writing of Scripture has ceased. We also believe that the apostolic era that produced Peter and Paul and John has ceased. There will be no more like them, for they form the foundation of the church. That foundation is never to be repeated. All that's left for us to do is to build on that foundation. And concern number eight, aren't all Christians continuationists to some degree, waiting for God to speak to them? You know, I have a very dear friend who's a seminary prof, and he's a cessationist. He told me of an unusual experience in his life. He had just received an invitation to teach at a seminary where he now teaches. His ministry there has been overwhelmingly effective, fruitful, and it's resulted in great good to, to many churches. But as he and his wife were praying about this opportunity during one Sunday after he had enjoyed worship together as a church, a dear woman in his congregation approached him. She said she'd been in prayer for them, and in her prayer life, she felt strongly impressed to tell them something. She said, I think there's a major decision before you, and I believe that you should say yes. Or at least she said something close to that. You know, both this man and his wife took that as a word from God. And here's what I know. All manner of godly people, be they cessationists or continuationists, have stories to tell just like that, in which they feel that God spoke to them personally. My concern is that we don't deny these ever-present encounters with the living God. Now to my final concern. I'm concerned about the rancor this debate has caused in some circles. Depending on which circles I'm moving in, being a cessationist, well, that can be akin to one who denies the power of the Spirit. And that's untrue. 
On the other hand, in other circles, being a continuationist is akin to someone who disregards the scripture and follows every bizarre wind of doctrine, constantly looking for the next zap or bizarre experience. And yet, I've found many continuationists, and it's simply untrue of them. They're profoundly biblical and rest always in the sufficiency of the scripture. Let me suggest a solution that that takes us back to the fruit of the Spirit. According to Galatians 5, the mark of spiritual maturity consists in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. See, all of that suggests that we learn to listen before we form quick judgments. And as you hear me teach about 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you might wonder if I'm trying to appease both sides. And in so doing, you might wonder whether both sides are going to condemn me in the end. But in truth, I'm going to allow the contemporary debate to always be before me. But my real concern is to ask, what does 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 actually teach? And once having understood it, biblicists can do no better than to submit to the authority of the Word of God. If I succeed at all, I want to give you confidence not in my interpretation of this text, but in the text itself to cause you to examine it afresh. And the next question is this, how do we apply these words to ourselves? And my plea is that as we study this text, that we put our swords down and we allow ourselves the wonderful journey of discovery. Let's allow ourselves to rejoice that the Holy Spirit is passing out gifts to his people. John, thanks, but let me get to a quick question because, you know, I grew up in an age where, you know, there was a lot of uh, charismatic wars almost uh, between denominations and churches and that. So why is it so important today that we're taking this time to discuss the charismatic uh, or this gifts of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, because uh, first of all, I think the Bible teaches it and anything the Bible teaches is, is good for us. Uh, secondly, the, the Holy Spirit wants us to be endued with power to reproduce the work of Jesus. So it's so very important that we run towards spiritual gifts and, and not away from them. Uh, at the same time, Ben, you and I know that because of the debates in the past, and which are still ongoing today in a great many circles, uh, we, I think, have stopped being biblical and even balanced, and we've simply divided and taken one side or the other. So this is an attempt to simply say, you know, what does the Bible teach about this and and how will this benefit our Christian lives? Thanks so much, John. We look forward to this great series in the days to come right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I'm grateful to express our gratitude for those who supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift during our fiscal year-end match campaign. Last month, we reached out across the country to ask for your help to sustain the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We're excited to share that we reached our match campaign goal of $75,000 in June, resulting in $150,000 being contributed to our fiscal year-end. The campaign was such a success that now an additional $50,000 has been pledged to continue our match campaign through July. So for the month of July, we share with you the opportunity to participate in an additional $50,000 for dollar match campaign. Every dollar you give will be doubled. 
Thank you for your generosity and commitment. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.